It's safe to say that coronavirus has affected everyone in some way, shape, or form. Many people have lost their jobs, some people still can't visit family members, and lots of people have lost their lives or lost loved ones. Social and economic inequality has made minority communities particularly prone to getting the virus, and one of those severely affected is the black community here in the United States. On this episode of Science with a Twist, Fred Lowry, Senior Vice President and President of Life Science Solutions and Laboratory Products, sits down with Dr. James Hildreth, an American immunologist and academic administrator who currently serves as the 12th President and Chief Executive Officer of Meharry Medical College. For many years, he's been a voice for the African-American community, particularly when it comes to inequality on access to healthcare. Part of their discussion is gonna focus on the JUST project, It's a multi-pronged effort to help address the coronavirus crisis in communities of color. It's also a powerful extension of our corporate social responsibility program at Thermo Fisher Scientific, as well as part of our mission, which is to enable our customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. Fred began by asking Dr. Hildreth about whether communities of color should take the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, The answer is yes, we should take the vaccine. In fact, there are probably gonna be multiple vaccines that get approved messenger RNA. It's the first time this technology has been used for vaccines, so it's very promising to see that both in both cases we have such a strong uh, preliminary response to the vaccine. I know there's a lot of weariness on the part of people in some communities about medical research and vaccines, but the truth of the matter is that without the vaccine, we're going to find ourselves mitigating the virus for a very long time. So we have a lot of work to do to convince some of the folks who are reticent about it to step up and actually accept it because unless 60 to 70 percent of us are immune to the virus, we'll be dealing with this virus for a very long time. Can you talk about the role that testing will continue to play even though there's a vaccine that's going to be available relatively soon? Fred, I think the best way to answer that is to remind people that for every case that's diagnosed through a PCR test, there are probably between four and 10 cases that are not diagnosed. And we can say that based on serology studies that have not been done with test kits, serology tests that have been uh, confirmed to be effective. What that means is that there's still a lot of virus out there that's infecting people that's going undetected. So we need to be doing a lot more screening than we're doing right now. And we're doing a lot, but it's still not quite enough to make the invisible enemy visible. And I've been advocating from the beginning that we've taken a population approach to this problem, which would be fine if the risk was the same across all the populations, but it's not. There are some segments of the population that are much more vulnerable than others. And in those populations, nursing homes, uh, people who are incarcerated, minority communities, The testing needs to be very intense to identify the virus as quickly as possible. You know, we we kicked off the JUST project months ago, and and let me first say thank you, because you you were really the first college president that we spoke with, and you became a really big advocate and supporter and helped us really formulate what we wanted to do and then kick it off with connecting us with other HBCUs. So your, your support was very important to get the JUST project off the ground. I wonder if you could talk more about the role 
of historically black colleges and universities in helping uh, not only create safe campuses, but also influence the broader community around testing and creating a safe, safer community. One of the things that we are quite aware of here at Meharry, and I'm sure it's true at the other schools as well, is that we've come to be a, an institution that's very much trusted by the community, and we don't take that lightly. And of course, given the current situation, I just felt compelled that we should do all that we can do as an organization, recognizing that this is this pandemic is being borne disproportionately by people of color, that we should do everything we can to to make sure that that group does not get overlooked or that we have all the resources needed to protect them. It was incumbent upon us to step up and do all that we could to create a safe environment, for, not just for the students who are returning to campus, but for the extended communities that we that we are in. I was truly excited to get the call <laughs> from you uh, with the idea that you wanted to do this. And we all are so grateful to Thermo Fisher for doing this because it's going to have an impact that transcends COVID-19 in terms of the technology and expertise and the training that's being uh, provided by, by the company. So thanks very much for, the, for that. It's been a great partnership. I want to talk more about health disparities and you mentioned the impact on minority communities. Can you tell us why is COVID impacting minority communities at a, at a higher rate, both from an infection standpoint and a rate of death than other communities? So Fred, fundamentally, what it comes down to is underlying conditions, access to health care, and whether or not the information provided is trusted and accepted by populations. We kind of knew from early reports from China, which is a racially homogeneous nation, of course, that there were certain individuals who seem to be doing very poorly with COVID-19 versus the rest of the population. These individuals happen to be either smokers, have diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and some other chronic conditions. And in China, if those individuals were getting much more ill and or sicker and dying at a faster rate. And if you come over to the United States, the population groups that have the highest burden of all those things are people of color. And what it comes down to is that those conditions make our bodies less able to deal with an infectious agent like the SARS-CoV-2 virus than otherwise would be the case. And especially those who smoke or have asthma and other conditions that compromise the function of the lungs. If you add the virus on top of that, it just makes for a really, really uh, challenging situation. Not only do we get sicker and die more often, we get infected more often, and that has to do with the conditions in which people live. In many communities, there are multi-generational families living in the same household. And if a younger person gets the virus and brings it home to a family that has, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers or elderly relatives, that just makes for a very uh, challenging situation. But also the jobs that people have. If you work in a meat packing plant or you're much more exposed to the virus, you get infected more often. So not only do we get sicker and die more often, we get infected more often because of the social, social determinants of all of this. So clearly the risk is not evenly shared among the population. If we wanna save lives, we should be focused on the groups that are most likely to die from this. And that's what I've been saying from the beginning.
you know, as I think about particularly the black community and, you know, going back to the historical things like the Tuskegee experiment, that there's still some lingering mistrust in that community as it relates to uh, yes. the medical system. And I, I'm, I'm curious to hear the role that Meharry is taking and really HBCUs in general in helping to fight back those ideas. Fred, this is a, a really challenging problem, one that I have been spending quite a bit of time on trying to come up with a plan that Meharry can put in place to make sure that we can convince persons of color that this is not a choice for us. If we don't take the vaccine, given how the virus is ravaging our communities, it's not going to be a pretty picture. But on the other hand, going all the way back to 1619, there have been atrocities visited upon black bodies in the service of research that cannot be ignored. Tuskegee is prominent in that, but of course, there are lots of other examples that can, one can point to. So the mistrust is justified when you put it in that context. But as a result of Tuskegee, a national commission was created by the president. We now have these standards of informed consent, IRBs, data safety monitoring boards. So Tuskegee changed everything in a positive way. So that same thing that people focus on as being the basis for mistrust was also the basis for revolutionizing human subjects research. So we just have to do a good job of providing information to people to let them make an informed decision, but we need trusted messengers. That's our focus, to identify those persons like faith leaders who are trusted and well-respected and give them the information they need to become advocates. Because if we don't do that, this is just not gonna work. Well, you certainly are a trusted messenger. And did I get this right? Are you are you in a vaccine trial, or were, or were you a part of a trial, or will you be a part yeah. of a trial? Yes, I'm. I'm uh, we've had a couple of delays. But we're going to do the Novavax vaccine here at Meharry. You know, it's a recombinant protein with an adjuvant is the model they're using. The FDA asked them to modify their protocol, so they had to delay the start. I'm going to be participant number one in our study here at Meharry, and I'm doing that because I just feel that I have a lot more credibility advocating for others who look like me to accept a vaccine or be part of a study if I have myself uh, been part of a study. My real inclination as a scientist, virologist, and immunologist would be to be leading the vaccine effort here at Meharry. But I have a very competent team of infectious disease doctors who can do it. So I made the choice that rather than being the PI of a study myself, that I would rather remain in the role of advocating, informing, and communicating. And so that's what I'm doing is trying to lead by example. That is really awesome. I, I wanna talk more about the role of HBCUs more broadly. I'd like to hear it from the context of, of Meharry because you have such an impact as a medical school, and maybe just a few statistics, and you can talk sure. to us about that. The medical school at Meharry is one of the oldest in the South, maybe one of the oldest in the nation. It was founded in 1876. And it's an interesting story because in the spring of 1826, a young white teenage boy named Samuel Meharry was driving a wagon through the backwoods between Tennessee and Kentucky and his wagon got stuck in the mud and a black family apparently helped him to 
get unstuck and give him a place to sleep overnight. And he promised that if he ever had any means, he would do something for black folks. And sure enough, you fast forward 50 years to 1876, he and his four brothers made a gift of about twenty dollars to $30,000, no one knows the exact number, to Central Tennessee College to start a medical department for African-Americans. We're founded as a place to give opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't get them. And we, along with Morehouse, Drew, and Howard, trained a preponderance of Black physicians. We've been doing that for a long time. I think that we have an outsized impact on other healthcare fields like dentistry. You know, there are 200,000 dentists licensed to practice dentistry in the United States, about 6,000 of whom are Black, which is only, what, 3%. But of those 6,000 Black dentists, Meharry Medical College trained 42% of them to give you a sense wow. of just what an impact we have. But we also train biomedical PhD researchers. One thing that people don't know is that in the 50s and 60s, when Jewish students could not get into white medical schools in the South, many of them came to Meharry and we welcomed them with open arms. Our history is one of giving opportunity. We have an academically diverse <laughs> body of students. We, we clearly take some students who have very compelling stories. We know they're going to do great things when they graduate, but these students would not have been accepted by other medical schools. And I love every year without fail, there are a few students who got rejected by very prestigious medical schools. And those same students are graduating from Meharry and going to those places as, re as residents. So they were not <laughs> they were not good enough to be medical students there, but those same places have recognized their their strengths and recruited them as residents. So we have the respect and trust of the communities that we're part of. And when the pandemic started, we immediately said, okay, we've got to make sure that black folks and Latinx people can have access to testing. That's what drove us to be one of the early organizations that started doing testing on a, on a broad basis. And of course, now we're doing all the testing for the city of Nashville. So I think that similar stories are true around the country for HBCUs. And we have a, a culture and environment that allows students to thrive, who quite frankly would not do so were they at other kinds or other predominantly white institutions. And I do remember, Fred, when I was being interviewed, for the Rhodes Scholarship back in 1978, one of the questions was asked was, did I think that HBCUs had outlived their usefulness? Now, of course, I very diplomatically said, no, I disagree. You know, rattled off some of the things that were not for HBCUs, some of the leaders that we've had and progress that we've made as a nation, but as a people, would clearly not have been possible. So I think that's still true today. Well, a couple of things. One, you know, I'm a Tennessee boy, and I've never heard that Meharry story before. So oh, thanks, really? <laughs> thanks for thanks for telling me that. I I appreciate that. But yeah, HBCUs are, are definitely here to here to stay. And over 22 percent of Black graduates come from HBCUs. What are some of the challenges that HBCUs have seen during this pandemic as it relates to making sure that they can stay open? And so, Fred, one of the primary challenges relates to resources. Many schools could very easily switch to a virtual learning mode where their professors and students could be connected through technology. 
Well, of course, a lot of the HBCUs did not have the resources or wherewithal to do that. So that was a challenge. And the JUST project itself is based on that idea because very few HBCUs have the resources to do the kind of testing that some of the majority schools would do. Duke and U University of California are great examples. University of California, between faculty, students, and staff, there's 600,000 individuals, and they have a plan that they put in place. At first, they were testing everybody almost every day. Imagine being able to test 600,000 people on a regular wow. basis. Now, of course, there are five medical schools in the system. There are very few HBCUs that can do that. And one of the things that I've been pushing for is to have the four black medical schools be viewed as a consortium because as a consortium, we have considerable strengths that I think allow us to do some things that maybe none of us individually could do. And I hope that some of the undergraduate HBCUs will start to think in that same way. Many people don't know that the Ivy League schools have a consortium and they meet on a regular basis and talk about resources. And I just think that we we need to do the same thing, right? We don't have billion dollar endowments that allow us to invest in new programs. Hopefully the giving to HBCUs in terms of alumni and just friends and philanthropists will address some of that because I think that people are now recognizing we're here, we turn out a quality product and you know we're making significant contributions. What more can companies like Thermo Fisher do to help to eliminate the health disparities that we see in minority communities? If we can expose young people to all the excitement around medicine and healthcare, and I would even say biomedical research, I'm a little biased because I think that's a great career for anybody is to be a biomedical researcher, but I think those early exposures to have kids see someone who looks like them in these roles of physicians, scientists, would have a profound effect on, on health and healthcare. I mean, the evidence is very clear that when there is a connection between the provider and the person sitting in front of them, the outcomes are better. I mean, that's just a, the data is very clear on that. But the healthcare profession itself is not very diverse, and certainly the leadership of healthcare is even less so. But I need to point out that access to healthcare or healthcare itself, according to many studies, only contributes in a small way to overall health. The Kaiser study and a few other studies attribute about 15% of our overall health to healthcare. The rest relates to where you live and your behaviors, smoking, physical activity, whether or not you eat a healthy diet. But all those things then <laughs> are determined in some respect by your race, because again, we can't avoid it. Systemic racism has created some structural barriers to disadvantage people of color in terms of, of educational attainment, uh, socioeconomic status, et cetera. And all those things factor into whether or not we are healthy. And one of the things a big company like Thermo Fisher could do would be to provide opportunities for children to be exposed to medicine and healthcare. And they have no idea <laughs> how, how technology has transformed everything we on an everyday basis and the tools available 
to doctors and scientists now were just unimaginable a decade ago. What do you see as the long-term impacts of the JUST project? Well, first, Fred, one of the long-term impacts is I think that when a company such as Thermo Fisher decides to make a significant investment in our institutions, that gets the attention of other uh, organizations and institutions who will maybe hopefully promptly <laughs> decide to do the same. And of course, that happened with the Gates Foundation who gave a matching gift to what you did. But I also think that uh, as a consequence of setting up programs to bring students in and expose them to what you're doing and to hire people from HBCUs into the organization, I tell people that when you have highly motivated, bright uh, young people who come from HBCUs, who become part of an organization, an organization gets to see them up close and personal, that's simply going to open a pathway for others to do the same. Right. So I think that those are at least two ways, and there are probably others, that the JUST Project will have a long-term impact on the institutions themselves, on the students who come there to be trained. So. This is just a great uh, thing that you've done, and we're really, really grateful. As are we. It's been a, a great uh, partnership with, with HBCUs, and quite frankly, you know, part of the Just Project is it is attracting more talent from HBCUs. So we are committed to hiring 500 HBCU graduates over the next three years, and our hope is that others will join us in that commitment. Uh, other companies will join us in that commitment, so that we can. Uh, continue to diversify biotech, biopharma, life sciences, and, and have that impact that you, that you mentioned. One thing that I would like to say <laughs> to people everywhere is that we've come to a point in the pandemic we're hoping to avoid, where literally we're, we're, on, we're at the base of what could be uh, exponential rise in cases that would overwhelm our healthcare system. That's already happening in some places. So I'm just pleading with people, wear a mask and uh, keep, the, keep the size of your gathering small. And let's, let's protect each other because the vaccines are coming, but they're still months away. Let's make some good decisions and turn this thing around because if we don't, people who look like me are gonna bear the brunt of the disease and death. And we're trying to avoid that. That was Fred Lowry, Senior Vice President and President of Life Sciences Solutions and Laboratory Products at Thermo Fisher Scientific, along with Dr. James Hildreth, Chief Executive Officer of Meharry Medical College. If you like what you heard on today's podcast, please subscribe to Science with a Twist so you don't miss an episode in the future. Until then, we'll see you next time on Science with a Twist.